From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. U.S. Strategic Command is paying, quote, full attention to the coronavirus, according to STRATCOM Commander Admiral Charles Richard. About 10 STRATCOM personnel are in protected self-quarantine at headquarters at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. Breaking defense reports, Admiral Richard says the most common reason for the quarantines is travel. The Defense Department's outfitting two Navy hospital ships as part of the domestic response to the coronavirus. Secretary of Defense Mark Espers authorized one to deploy off the East Coast and the other off the West Coast. USNI News reports it will take about a week for both ships to hit full operational capability. The Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency has a new leader. William Lietzow will replace Charlie Phelan as the head of the security clearance operation. FedScoop reports Lietzow is the head now of the Personnel Vetting Transformational Office. Phelan says March 30th is the target date for the change of leadership. The Defense Department has a stop movement order in place on travel within the United States and its territories for all civilian and military personnel and their families. It's part of the effort to stop the spread of coronavirus. Veronica Hinton is Principal Director for Civilian Personnel Policy at the Department of Defense. Veronica, thanks very much for coming on. How definitive is the stop, uh, stop movement order? Are there exemptions or exceptions that you're allowing right now? Yes, there are. There, uh, the stop movement order is designed to um, preserve the safety and well-being of our civilian employees, uh, our uniformed personnel, and their families, um, while ensuring we also uh, can maintain mi uh, mission continuity, mission essentiality. So while the travel uh, restriction uh, is global uh, for level three countries, um, there are exceptions available depending on mission essentiality, humanitarian, um, and other uh, hardship uh, needs or determinations or reasons, uh, there are designated senior officials in the department that can grant exceptions to that stop movement uh, restriction. What does that exception process look like? Is it the person initiating it? Is it the supervisor or superior initiating it? What does that look like, Veronica? Um, so it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, there are some blanket exemptions for uh, uniform personnel and civilians that are uh, going to be retiring or separating within the 60-day period. So there is no need for uh, individual exemptions or exceptions in those cases. Um, for uh, the other cases, we encourage our workforce to have those conversations with their supervisors and with their chain of command uh, so that they can up-channel and provide uh, their requests through that. There is an opportunity for those designated officials to, to delegate the, the authority down to uh, the first general officer, SCS in the chain of command, and, and so we can get the decisions to the level uh, that, can, uh, be, that can happen quickly uh, for those individuals that need to have an exception considered. How are you evaluating telework for the civilian workforce, Veronica? What, are you, what factors are you considering whether folks can work from home or whether they need to come to the building or, or whatever building they report to? So, you know, like any federal agency, we are working to maximize telework here in the department. Uh, over 40% of our uh, civilian workforce is telework eligible. 
Um, we will continue to take a look at, and our supervisors and our leadership are looking at positions uh, to see if we can continue to expand that. Um, some considerations that will have to be made as we look at that is, you know, are, do the positions handle classified information? Um, do they require on-site daily, daily? Uh, daily uh, interfaces and, and mission criticality, but but generally where we can, we want to maximize telework uh, for our workforce. Uh, what's the turnaround time? Do you have a sense yet of what that looks like for someone who maybe doesn't have a telework agreement in place today, but as you're trying to scale this and expand it, getting that person or, or that group of people approved for telework and, and letting them work remotely? Um, that is on an ad hoc, um, real-time basis, uh, as it is in any situation, not just this uh, current uh, environment that we're in. Uh, employees can have conversations with their supervisor and enter into a telework agreement at any point in time. You mentioned the sensitive information aspect of this. How are you going about evaluating? Is that also case-by-case -case basis, or does it depend on the level of uh, clearance that a person has regarding the information they can access? Or what, what does that look like, Veronica? It, it is a case-by-case, position-by-position basis, um, depending on the level of uh, sensitive information, classified information that individuals have to have to handle as part of their daily duties. Um, we do have the ability to have secure teleworking um, in some instances, so uh, those conversations are happening happening currently. Um, in the cases where we have individuals that that have a mixed, blended. Uh, 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 work portfolio of unclassified and classified um, those conversations will have to have to occur at the individual level to determine it, 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 at what it's to what extent uh, the individuals can telework um, on their on their unclassified material if they don't have access to secured teleworking we just have a couple of minutes left Veronica and I want to go back to the stop movement order does this apply to people in their personal lives too are you asking them to not move around? in their personal lives or is or is the stop work or stop movement order only in place regarding their DOD business? Uh, so it's a little bit of both. So the, the actual stop movement is only in place regarding their official government funded movement. However, um, we do encourage our workforce and their families to adhere to the guidelines put out by uh, the CDC uh, to limit their travel, uh, their personal travel and their activities. But no, the stop movement is not in place for personal leave, personal travel. Um, but with any leave situation, again, a conversation with the supervisor in terms of mission essential work that they need to accomplish um, in order to uh, maintain mission continuity. But if, if if they're in a place where they can uh, uh, approve leave, there is nothing that restricts them from, from having leave approved and traveling. Um, less than a minute left, Veronica. Any major differences between personnel in the United States and personnel deployed overseas? Yeah, our, our, um, our, both of our travel restrictions, both uh, uh, OCONUS and domestically, uh, apply across the board. Again, personal travel, there are no restrictions uh, for civilian uh, employees. Uh, uh, contingent on leave approval between uh, that employee and their supervisor. Again, we ask them to practice uh, uh, those guidelines that we see from the CDC and, and be smart about their own well-being and safety and the well-being and safety of, of their families, of the DOD family writ large, and the communities in which we uh, live and work. Veronica Hinton, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me.
Our coverage of the impact of the coronavirus in the federal marketplace continues at 8 and 11 every night this week on WJLA 24-7 News. And we want to hear from you. You can send us your questions to info at govmatters.tv or tweet us at govmatters.tv. The Department of Defense will work toward decoupling hardware and software. The goal is, to, is the ability to upgrade the software whenever the user needs to. Peter Ranks is Deputy Chief Information Officer for Information Enterprise at the Department of Defense. Peter, thanks for coming on the program. What's the concept of decoupling hardware and software mean? Yeah, Francis, thanks for having me. I think there's, there's really two concepts that are well understood commercially that don't have a lot of penetration into the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. And one is something that most of us are familiar with from our consumer lives, which is about a decade ago, the software on our phones started to evolve a lot faster than the underlying hardware. A few years later, we saw that into the televisions in our living rooms. Mm -hmm. And now you see that if you look at the difference between uh, a Tesla that gets software updates on a regular basis, and even the tr traditional automotive industry, where if you wanted the newer software, you had to buy the newer version. That's what I talk about when we that's what I mean when we talk about decoupling hardware and software. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, within the Department of Defense, uh, we buy things as an integrated system, mm -hmm. right? We want them to be finished and fully complete when they're delivered to us. And we don't generally get the upgrades until we move from block three to block four. Um, newer programs are already taking a different approach. They're trying to have a more rapid delivery of software to to production, and keep in mind that in the Department of Defense, production often means uh, aircraft, weapon systems, uh, ships, uh, but the language we use within the Department of Defense about building these big hardware platforms is such a dominant part of our culture, such a dominant part of the budget, that it actually kind of pervades everything else. So even when we're buying back office software, mm -hmm. we're buying intelligence analytics software, the tools we use to build aircraft carriers are the tools that we use to build business software and that slows us down so that's a commercial concept uh, that we have to adopt it's a little bit different I think for the department than for other federal agencies because we buy a lot of stuff we mm -hmm. buy big hardware platforms uh, the other concept that I think is connected to that is the rapid delivery of small amounts of capability into production mm -hmm. this is now very common everywhere else this is DevOps agile development DevSecOps um, and that's the other challenging uh, piece of the software puzzle for us where the commercial ecosystem has adopted it, uh, but we have a lot of work to do. I think of all of the concepts that you've laid out there, Pete, the most important one is changing the language, the way that the department asks industry for the stuff that it needs. Am I on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at our program of work in this space over the next year, there's a technical piece of it and there's a non-technical, non-material piece to it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, on the technical side, there's already lots of good work underway. It's a it's a solved technical problem commercially, and our only problem in the Department of Defense is that it keeps being solved over and over again. Mm -hmm. So from a DOD CIO perspective, we want to just identify and endorse good ideas. But when you look at the non-technical side, where this methodology interacts with acquisition, where it interacts with testing, where it interacts with cybersecurity, where it interacts with a a business ecosystem inside the Department of Defense, that's where it's really difficult for us to adopt this technology. We think our large vendors need know, need know how to do this. Mm -hmm. The problem is that every process we have within the department pushes back on the concept of rapid delivery of small amounts of capability into production. What would you like to change or what do you think you have to change to be able to reach this state of maturity that you're talking about? So if we if we, if we take the technology as a given, and we'll have to continue to work on that, uh, and it evolves very quickly, but if we take that as a given, 
uh, we're going to work first uh, with acquisition. And we're in luck here that we have a really good partner in the Undersecretary of Defense uh, for acquisition and sustainment. She's been leaning way forward on this topic uh, and going so far as to create new policy around the acquisition of software. And we're working uh, directly with her to make sure that the tools we build are baked into that. Uh, the next piece that we have to tackle, and people who have tried to do this, whether they're the industrial base or inside uh, government, have tried to really work in a DevSecOps model, will have found that at the end of that, when they're delivering software rapidly to, uh, into production, they run into a cyber accreditation process that feels like a wall to them. Mm -hmm. And that's not the fault of the cyber accreditors, we just haven't engaged them in the conversation in a productive way. Too much of this is developers talking to developers, and we have to weave the cyber assessment folks into that conversation. I imagine it's also especially useful that you have people like Will Roper in the Air Force and leaders in the other branches in both acquisition and technology positions that are pushing in the same direction that you're pushing at yeah, OSD. Yeah, so in fact, when you, when you talk about Mr. Roper's organization, the uh, some of the technology problems that I say, uh, you know, we think we can count on, a lot of that is coming from the Air Force and a partnership with the Air Force. Because they're further out ahead than other parts of the department, we want to make sure that what they've built is available broadly across the Department of Defense. Not as a mandate, but as an opportunity. Uh, if you want to take advantage of this, uh, we don't need every individual program trying to solve the technology stack over and over again. Mm -hmm. We get into religious wars about tools, and we miss the really important parts, as you raised earlier, which is we have to adapt the rest of the cultural process in order to really get the value from this. Is there or should there be a distinction between the decoupling of the hardware and software in, say, a weapon system and the decoupling of the hardware and software in a back office, the ERP or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think, I think the adoption of cloud technology really satisfies the constraint of the second one because mm -hmm. we're not deploying to something that's disconnected from the network. Yes. Uh, so, so we are in good shape there in the sense that the cloud objectives we've pursued over the last year and a half start to position us to have access to a, a hardware plane, an infrastructure kind of surface that we can build software on. The, the issue is really that a lot of the technical processes don't support that. They still ask questions like, what are the names and physical locations of your servers? They assume there's a tight coupling in the system between the hardware and software, when a lot of those concepts are no longer relevant in the cloud. Uh, and again, that's, a, that's us catching our vocabulary and our terminology around some of these other aspects, acquisition, cybersecurity, and testing, having it cut, catch up to the technology we've already implemented. Very quick thought, 20 seconds left. How will you measure success, Pete? Uh, I think the first thing we want to look for is that new starts within the Department of Defense, uh, almost all new starts for software, start to have this DevSecOps, Agile Development Language incorporated to them. We should start seeing that in acquisitions, and offerers should start to see an infrastructure they can tap into within the department when they try and bid those programs. Pete Ranks, thanks very much for thanks coming Thanks very much on. for having me. The Defense Health Agency is consolidating care in 50 hospitals and clinics across the country. The Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, calls pacing important in the merger of his branch's health care facilities into the DHA. Dr. Barkley Butler is the J-4 Component Acquisition Executive and Head of Contracting Actions at the Defense Health Agency. Dr. Butler, thanks for coming on the program. Thank Welcome. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, what is the story behind this, this consolidation of these 50 facilities? What's happening exactly? Yeah, let me, uh, let me first state that um, over 98% of our beneficiaries will have no impact whatsoever on this announcement. 
The, uh, the 703 section of our National Defense Authorization Act of 2017 tasked the Secretary of Defense to realign and readjust where our facilities are in support of our delivery of care and support of readiness. And, and to that extent, um, we produced a report to Congress on the 19th of February. And, uh, and in that report, we identified uh, 48 facilities that will reduce operations and two facilities that will get larger or expand. Mm -hmm. and, and in that, probably most important to our beneficiaries is that 31 of those will go from primary care clinics where they treat um, not only our active duty service members, but our beneficiaries and, and our retirees. They will go from a primary clinic to an active duty only clinic. Mm -hmm. It turns out that it's about 200,000 uh, uh, beneficiaries will go through that transition. But I have to emphasize that it will take likely years to get this completed. Mm -hmm. um, what we will do is we will restructure those, get the hospitals and clinics in the right places where our patients are, get that care where our units have moved around the country and get that really right size and, and in the right locations. Um, a, a key piece of that is the, um, is the detailed design of this uh, right sizing. And, and uh, the number one feature there is making sure that our TRICARE support contractor in the purchase care network around our hospitals has both the capacity and the capability to take on those patients. Mm -hmm. So we will reassess where we are, what capacities they have, give them time to ramp up based on the workload that we bring them, and, and I think we'll be very successful there. I, I will tell you, I've had a chance to go out and visit a lot of our hospitals, our military medical treatment facilities, and when I talk to the uh, managed care support contractors and the purchase care providers, I can't tell you how proud they are to serve our beneficiaries, providing quality care and access to care. The questions that you're getting from the people who will not be served by these facilities anymore, what kinds of questions are you, they asking you and what are the answers that you're giving them to those questions? Well, our Doctor? beneficiaries, they just really love being in our military medical treatment facilities. They come from military backgrounds and they love being with our military providers. Their biggest concern, I have to tell you, is access to care. Will they get the same access to care? Not so worried about quality, mm. because quality of care in, in this country is really quite good across domains. So I think we'll be able to get that quality of care. My big uh, effort here will be to make sure I've got access to care so they get those appointments and the type of appointments they need when they need them. I mentioned the comment about Secretary McCarthy of the Army talking about the pacing of this merger. Is that are the questions that those people are asking in your mind what Secretary McCarthy is getting at about the pacing when this transition happens and how it's going to happen to the people to which it's going to happen? Well, I, I actually, I don't think so. I think mm. the Secretary is most concerned in, in that uh, a fast pace um, uh, it has a lot of change in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I share with you, we have detailed plans that lay out what that looks like. Um, we're driving toward completing our continental United States uh, transformation at the end of this fiscal year, and we're very protective of the readiness posture overseas. We won't even start uh, working those until next year. That's a key issue for our department service uh, surgeon generals, that, they, that it's the readiness of the force overseas, and that will be another phase, very deliberate planning as well. DHA has just stood up its first four medical markets across the country. What does that mean, and what do they do? How does that manifest itself in the care that people yeah, receive? Yeah, those, those markets um, are really important to us. Let, let me first share with you, um, our measure of performance is 
really a value equation which is better readiness and that's both readiness of the service members and readiness of the care teams. So it's better readiness plus better health plus better care all divided by lower cost. The reason that's important is that we define a market um, as really all of those healthcare capabilities within a geographic space. So let me pick the National Capital Region. So it's Walter Reed, our academic medical center. It's Fort Belvoir, our community hospital. It's the Dumfries Clinic, our primary care clinic. It's a specialty care clinic. It's our managed care support contractors that are providing care. It's our relationship with the VA. The new market directors are not just responsible for an MTF mm -hmm. and trying to be everything to everybody, rather they're responsible for pulling all of those levers and optimizing that care across that entire market. That's how we reduce costs. We, we take out unnecessary variation. When you take out unnecessary variation in healthcare, you always improve quality at reduced costs. That's what we're driving for. The first four markets, first one was National Capital Region. Very proud of that. Second one is um, the Central North Carolina Center at Fort Bragg. Third one is Jacksonville Navy facility. And the fourth one is centered uh, uh, coastal Mississippi around uh, Keesler Air Force Base. We have about 30 seconds left, Dr. Barkley, uh, Dr. Butler. What does this look like? What does that market look like? when it's mature, when it's scaled to the degree that you want it to scale. Yeah, so I see, I see that as being really a, a, a system of healthcare delivery that produces readiness. Readiness for our service members and readiness for our care teams. And to our patients, our beneficiaries, it is completely transparent what part of that market they're in. It's one uh, integrated delivery care system. Dr. Butler, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.